0: Well, what does someone say when they know that their life is drawing to a close? Uh, this week, I, I googled in uh, the, the phrase, famous last words, and here are some that I came up with. It is well, I die hard, but I am not afraid to go, George Washington. And then even more famous, Elvis, I hope I haven't bored you. It's interesting. Pope John Paul II, let me go to the house of the Father, and then most recently, let's roll, All Right, The guy who uh, rescued the plane that was bound for the Pentagon, Todd Beamer. And often, uh, people's last words reveal a lot about their, their character, uh, their, their priorities, the things that were, were closest and dearest to their hearts, and one of the things that I learned in seminary was about these, uh, these verses in the Gospels, and, and they referred to them as the hinge verses. If you think of it like kind of like a door hinge, it's kind of when the, when the story turns. And these hinge verses are, are moments in, in the Gospels where Jesus uh, kind of resolutely turned his attention towards Jerusalem and began to walk on that path towards the cross. And you see examples uh, of that in in these verses in Matthew. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And then in Luke, we find it in chapter 9, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. But over the course of the next couple of months, kind of leading up to Easter, we're going to be taking a look at uh, Jesus' teachings when he knew that his time uh, was drawing to a close. And I'm titling this series, Famous Last Words. So, when he knew that he had just a few months or a few weeks to live, what was it that he felt like, I really need to make sure that my followers get this? You know, what was it that was dearest to his heart? But before we dive into um, one of the reoccurring themes that we're going to look at in his, in his last days, I think it's very important for us to, to understand uh, the context of the time in which Jesus was speaking and, and the hopes that the Jews had for this Messiah that was supposed to come. That the people of Israel had been promised by their prophets for hundreds and hundreds of years now that there was going to be this Savior. Uh, they called the Messiah, that was going to come and he was going to redeem Israel and kind of make everything right. And so Jesus enters into this first century reality with his people where they're oppressed and, and they're, they're ruled, they're occupied by the Roman Empire. And so there were several other people besides Jesus who stepped forward over time and said, hey, I'm the Messiah. And when people step forward like that, there was an anticipated message uh, of deliverance, an anticipated message of, of the, this guy, whoever this leader was going to be, was going to conquer the Romans then and give the, the people of Israel their nation back, their freedom that they hadn't experienced for so long. So when Jesus turns 30, he leaves his, his parents' hometown and, and his carpenter shop, and he, he begins um, living as the Messiah, the Savior that he was created to be. And he gathers around him um, some followers and some disciples, and he begins teaching people about the kingdom of God. He begins healing the sick and doing all kinds of miraculous signs. And, and literally thousands of people are coming to, to hear and experience all that God, Jesus, was offering. And right in the midst of, of kind of the height of his popularity and notoriety, he's, he's talking with his disciples one day, and he kind of just drops this bomb on them. And and it just was incomprehensible to them at that moment. So I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, page 682. Matthew 16. So we just read verse 21 on the screen where Jesus kind of tells him for the first time, "Hi, I have to go to Jerusalem, I have to be killed and be raised to life. So verse 22 says, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. So knowing who they were expecting Jesus to be and what they were expecting Jesus to do, you can kind of understand why they respond the way they do when he tells them this information, that he, that he was going to go and die. How, how can you lead a revolution if, if you're not here anymore? And, and so we understand Peter as, as he kind of confronts Jesus and he's like, what are you talking about? And Jesus says to him, Peter, listen, here's your problem. You're seeing this whole situation like, like men would see it, like people in this world will see it. You're picturing a revolution uh, through the world's eyes, but I, I've come to bring a different kind of revolution. He's saying, Peter, you want the gain without the pain. You want the glory without the suffering. You want the crown without the cross. And before disciples can even catch their breath, Jesus launches into this next teaching that's, that's familiar to us because a lot of us have read it so many times, but to them it must have been incredibly hard to hear. Let's look at verse 24. Then Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for, for me will find it. So when Jesus knew that his time on earth was drawing to a close, the the first topic that he wanted to cover with these guys was the cost of following him. And it was bad enough to hear that Jesus was going to suffer, but now he's saying to his followers, hey, you're in on this too. (laughs) You're going to have to suffer. And so now it's starting to become a little bit more personal. And the disciples didn't really get it then fully, exactly what that was going to mean for them, over years, they, they came to understand that. Many of them were, were literally killed. One of the guys that was there, the, the, the Apostle John, he was writing about 55 years later, and in his book, 1 John chapter 2, this is what he said. He said, this is how we know we are in him or in Christ. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Whoever claims to be a follower of Christ Must walk as Jesus did. Not should walk or ought to think about walking, but must walk. So how did Jesus walk? You see, the problem that we face as disciples of Christ is that far too often we want to define the terms, uh, the conditions of our following see, we want, we want to be able to identify ourselves as Christians. We kind of like that name, but we want to be able to define the conditions of the relationship, okay? And so we kind of go and say, hey, this, these are kind of the terms that we're comfortable with. And most people who call themselves Christians are are more than happy to come to church on Sunday morning fairly regularly and, and even read their Bible and, and try to live like what it says and and a lot of Christians are, are more than happy to serve some and, and maybe give some. And, um, you know, all of those things are, are great things. And, and quite honestly, we, we feel pretty good about ourselves when we're doing those things because we're thinking that's, that's like way more than what most people who would say that they're Christians are doing. And so we kind of pat ourselves on the back. And while all of those things are good things and, and all of those things are needed things, the problem is is that we are called to walk as Jesus did. And Jesus says, I want you to come and die with me. Not just show up for church. Not just try to be a good person or do the right thing, but die with me. And and honestly, um, many of us really didn't know what we were signing up for. Many of us heard these stories about Jesus, the gospel, wherever that might have, might have been at whatever time in your life, at some camp or at church somewhere or some you know, vacation Bible school. And the gospel was presented to us. And the gospel, by the way, means good news. And it was presented to us, or at least we wanted to hear it, as this. Maybe you're familiar with some of these ideas. Believe in Jesus and you can be forgiven of your sins and have eternal life. Believe in Jesus and you can have peace in the midst of your pain and suffering of life. Believe in Jesus and you can feel love and forgiveness. Believe in Jesus because he has this amazing plan for your life and and if you follow him, you're gonna have purpose and hope. Any of you remember hearing a gospel kind of like that presented to you at some point? Yeah, most of us have. And all of those things are true, but they're just incomplete. They're incomplete. There's more to the good news. The problem is is that sometimes the more doesn't really sound like good news on the surface like some of those things do, okay? Okay? We want Jesus on our terms. But he's not having that. Because he knows that approaching Christianity without being willing to die, it's not going to yield the life that you think it will. And it's why a lot of people kind of become disillusioned. Because he knows that it's going to be incomplete and hollow. And like Peter, we hear these these terms, and we're, we kind of shake our hands and being like, man, seriously? That seems like a lot, man, you know? So Jesus outlines his terms in verse 24. He says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. So to, to, not, to deny yourself means to acknowledge that you can't save yourself. And as we look through the book of Romans recently in our series, we remember this one verse uh, that that Paul said. He said, while we were still powerless, you remember that? While we had no ability to change our condition of being separated from God, of being hostile towards him, of being his enemy, in that state, Christ died for the ungodly. And then later on to kind of drive home this, this kind of dependent and humble nature that we should have, Paul in Philippians chapter three, he says, put no confidence in your flesh. Don't think for a minute that in your flesh you can achieve anything, especially saving yourself or making yourself good enough for God. One commentator put it like this. He said, human nature wants to indulge self, not deny self. Death to self is always terrible. And if we expect it to be a pleasant or mild experience, we will often be disillusioned. Death to self is the radical command of the Christian life. To take up your cross meant one thing you were going to a certain death, and your only hope was in resurrection power. So Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. And secondly, that he must take up his cross. And let's clarify uh, this. At this point, the disciples had no idea that Jesus was going to die on a cross. So when, when he said, take up your cross, they weren't thinking, oh yeah, like you're going to do. But, but crucifixion was um, a common means of execution in the Roman Empire. And so by this point in their life, the disciples had probably seen tens, maybe even hundreds of crucifixions. And they'd walk through towns and they'd seen these, these condemned men hanging there, dying in kind of this, this torturous way. And they understood that a man carrying his cross was a condemned man. A man that was literally putting on his back the very instrument of his death. Taking up your cross wasn't a journey. It was a one-way trip to the end of your fleshly life. Good news, huh? <laughs> <clears throat> so what does all this mean then, Bob? Like, what are you, what are you saying? Like, am I going to have to be executed to be a Christian or, or you know, no, this is an analogy that Jesus is using. He's, he's using this analogy for this other-centered, kingdom-focused life that he wants us to live. So he's saying, in other words, unless we live in the self-sacrificial way of Jesus, a, a way which would be described as, as, as him loosening his grip on everything in the world, loosening his grip on his popularity and people that wanted to make him king, Loosening his grip on on the security of of a life here, on, on letting go of his family and the things that he had to do to be the Savior that he was, of loosening his grip on things so that he could receive the nails in his hands, so that other people might live, so that other people might be forgiven and have hope. Unless we live a life in that way, We can't really call ourselves Christians. I guess we can. (laughs) But his terms for what a follower means is to die to your self-centered, worldly focus and desires. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We have to live a life of loyal obedience to Christ, which means that we have to go in the way in which he went, to the places that he went, which is to his death. Those are his terms. And on the surface, that seems pretty crappy, doesn't it? It doesn't sound like a great selling point. But in verse 25, Jesus gives us this amazing paradox that begins to help us make sense of some things. So let's look at verse 25 again. He says, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, for me, will find it. Mm -hmm. And this verse appears in in several other gospels as well. And the logic to this seeming paradox lies in this, is that we can't live a resurrected life unless we first die, right? Right? and you can't be resurrected from nothing you have to have been dead and John gives us this illustration in his gospel i want you to turn over to John chapter 12 a couple books over to the right John chapter 12 verses 23 through 25 verse 23 Jesus replies he says the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified I tell you the truth unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies it remains only a single seed but if it dies it produces many seeds the man who loves his life will lose it while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life So when you plant a seed, you don't lose the seed, do you? I mean, it appears to be dead and buried, but really what you're doing with the seed is you're freeing it up to be what it was created to be, right? So the same path to death, to the cross, is also the path to life, to the tomb, and eventually to resurrection, So it's like we ask somebody for directions and we say, you know, which way is the road that leads to death? And somebody would point us to the hill in which Jesus died on. And so we say, okay, well then, so then which way is the road to life? And they point to the same road and they say, just a little further past death. Man, we wish there was a different road, don't we? And we would just love to build a bridge right over the cross, right over to the good stuff on the other side, right? Man, fly me over, catapult me over, whatever. Remember that old Saturday Night Live skit, the yardapult, and you could like catapult like stuff you didn't want in your yard anymore over to your neighbor's yard, you know? Yardapult me over, whatever. We want the fullness of the spiritual blessings. We want all the goodies. Man, we want the love and the forgiveness and the grace and the peace and all of that stuff. Heaven, we just want it without a lot of pain and struggle. We want it to kind of be easy and comfortable. We don't want to have to kill our flesh. We don't want to have to let go of our grip on the things in this world that we really kind of love and want and we constantly try to negotiate a less demanding definition of what it means to be a Christian, you know? It's kind of like, man, how, how low can I set the bar but still get in, right? Yeah, just show me that line. Like, I was one of those students, you know, what do I got to do to make a B? You know, show me that, and man, I will do whatever I can to hit that. And if it's, you know, I'm not really willing to work that hard to make an A, maybe, Okay? But we do that as Christians. We try to define on our terms what it means to be a follower of him. And I mean, really, why is this good news? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are called the Gospels. Okay, they tell the story of Jesus' life, and Gospel is a a phrase that means good news. But the disciples who wrote those Gospels, they... They saw what happened to Jesus. (laughs) They saw that he was arrested and beaten and mocked and spit on and flogged and crucified. Can you imagine a conversation that they might have had with their parents after the crucifixion? So you left, you know, the fishing business, kind of left us hanging here to go follow this guy for three years. How'd that turn out for you? Well, you know, he just got killed, brutally murdered. But you're going to stick with him, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you can imagine being a parent, right? Doesn't make sense. Doesn't sound like good news. And the answer is, is that it's only good news if we wholeheartedly believe a few things first. First. First, we have to be convinced. Remember, we talked about how Paul would say, I am convinced of some things. We have to be convinced of some things like this. I want you to turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's page 802. Second <clears throat> Corinthians chapter 4, page 802. Starting in verse 7. Paul says we have this treasure, and what he's talking about there is our, our salvation, our, our, our relationship with God. We have this treasure in jars of clay. He's saying that we are jars of clay. Jars of clay were common, common pottery. They would have, you know, put water in and carried things around that are, that are easily breakable. We have this amazing treasure in this really fragile body of ours to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard pressed on every side, but we are not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always, and this is where this gets rich, (laughs) we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus. Ah, remember to see that? Because we know and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit. So that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Can you hear the conviction in Paul's voice when he writes that? I mean, this guy, he believed it. And as we talked about, he better have because he was getting beaten a lot. Killing our flesh and living an other-centered life only makes sense when we really believe that this is not our home. That there is an eternal glory waiting for those who are his followers. And it's when we try to make this life heaven by by trying to create this really comfortable existence, especially here in America, that suffering and sacrifice kind of seem stupid. Secondly, we have to believe that this death is producing something for us now as well. It's not just, oh, well, someday it'll be great. But the death of dying to our flesh, it produces something now in us as well. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. It says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy set before Jesus when he went to the cross? Yeah, kid. Us. Yeah, our our salvation, our relationship being restored with Christ. He was able to see into the future and know okay, this stinks now, (laughs) this is painful now, but this is gonna open up the door, the opportunity for forgiveness and life and healing and freedom, and it was worth it. You see, if we deny ourselves, if we take up our cross, if we follow Jesus to death, then the possibility exists for us to be resurrected to life, to receive power, from the Holy Spirit in us that could be used to help heal and bring relationship and hope and joy to those that God has placed in our life. But we're only going to have that power is kind of directly related to the amount at which we're willing to die to ourselves and our, our selfish focus and how others-centered we are. Because when we're focused on ourselves, we miss opportunities to share that good news with people. What did the disciples do after Jesus' death and resurrection? What can we learn from from how they responded to that horrible news? Well, first, they had to consider the cost of following him, right? Every one of those disciples that had been there, that had followed him, that had, had seen what happened to him on the cross, at some point they had to sit back and think, hmm, that might be me. Am I sure this is what I want to do? Every one of them had to wrestle with that, and it was very real. And then in the book of Acts, after Jesus was resurrected and he ascends into heaven, the disciples watch him. It says that they gather together in a room. They live in community. Because this challenge that's been given to them, this, this life that they can now see of what it means to be a follower of Christ, um, you need some encouragement. You need some fellowship on that road. And so they get together, and, and, and man, you know, their strength in numbers. And they pray because they realize, man, Jesus, we, we can't pull this off. I know you've left this church in our hands, but man, the Roman Empire is pretty powerful. And if this is going to happen, it's going to have to be you and it's going to have to be amazing because we're not that talented. And so they pray and they wait because Jesus said, I want you to wait for the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send you me. It's going to live in you, it's going to give you the power to do everything that I've called you to do. So they waited. And then at some point, they had to take steps of faith. Like a lot of you guys did when you wrote these next steps last week. You know, you had to count the cost of what these steps might, might take. You, we talked about being in community, about praying, and eventually you, you have to step out. And they believed that living a life on God's terms would lead to a greater life than any kind of life that they could imagine for themselves. And they had to trust Him that that was going to be true. And following Christ has cost me some stuff. To, to go into full-time ministry, I had to leave a pretty secure job that had a guaranteed pension. And we had to leave a house that at this point in our lives would have been paid off. Good timing for my son going to college next year. But, but going into ministry meant that now none of those things are really true. True. For me anymore as a pastor I've had to be right in the middle of people's pain and I've had to kind of <clears throat> walk with people through some situations I would have just have soon avoided and not not have had to be a part of because it was hard after you know 22 years or so of marriage um, just roughly Kristen and I have probably given away around hundred thousand dollars to our church, to Young Life, to Compassion International, to to people that we've supported in ministry. But I wouldn't trade any of the security that I had in my my old job, or the money that I've given in away for the things that I've gotten to be a part of and experience as a follower of Christ. I mean, not only have I seen my own life transformed, but I've seen. Marriages come back from the brink of divorce because of of Christ and and this understanding of what a covenant means. I've seen people who all they could see was just despair and depression be restored and given hope and, and joy. I've seen people who I've supported in ministry who have done amazing things for the kingdom of God and I've been able to celebrate that with them. But, guys, make no mistake, there is a cost to following Jesus. If you're going to be really following him, it's going to cost you something. If it's not costing you anything, then I would challenge whether you're really following Jesus or not. If it seems easy, it's probably not very real. When Jesus had only a little time left on this earth, he wanted to make sure that his disciples understood this paradox that in order to find your life, you have to lose it. And any gospel message that doesn't tell you that is probably truthfully kind of incomplete. The road to life is the same road as the road to death. It's just a little further down. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Those are his terms, and that's the only Christianity that I know. And as we come to the table and we, and we take communion, this, this ceremony really represents several things. It's saying a few things. One thing that it's, it's representing when we participate in it is when we are acknowledging that we are receiving Christ's death and, and resurrection uh, as payment for our sin. And so we're acknowledging, yes, God, I receive that. We're grateful for that. But we are also, by participating in that, Saying to God, God, I want to be broken. I want to be poured out so that other people might benefit from my life, that I might bring forgiveness and hope and all those things to others as well. And Paul talks about it in in Romans chapter 12. He says, Present your bodies as living sacrifices to God. And the only problem with a living sacrifice is that it can crawl off the altar. And sometimes, when we consider the cost of following Jesus, and the heat gets turned up, sometimes, sometimes we do kind of want to slink off the altar, be like, "Ah, this is this is a little difficult," you know. And we have to count the cost of whether this is worth it or not. So, I'm going to give you some time to just uh, meditate and prepare for this time of communion today. And guys, in the end, like I said, it has to boil down to do we trust God that it's worth it? That, that killing our flesh and, and sacrificing and serving and giving and all this stuff that we call being a Christian is really, in the end, worth it? Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and um, Lord, we just thank you <clears throat> for what you were willing to endure so that we might be free. We thank you for how you loosened your grip on anything in this world so that you could receive the nails that brought healing and forgiveness and life to us. And God, your call to us is to do the same thing. And Lord, sometimes we hear a gospel that, that sounds great and there are some good things to it, but a lot of times people kind of want to skip over some of the, the more demanding parts but those are the parts that, man, really lead to life and really give us the opportunity to bring life to those around us. And so God, help us to hear that and experience it as good news, to know that as we we crucify our selfishness and our comfort, that God, that there is benefit from that, that we then really begin to live because we're not holding on to things that can't really fill us, that can't really bring us the joy we think they will. And we're opening ourselves up to receive you, the giver of life. God, help us to walk as you did in in your self-sacrificial way. And as we come to your table this morning, help us to to wholeheartedly want to say, God, I want to be like you. I want to lay down my life so that others might live.